0: On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Ready PG 13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13.
1: are back with our 250th episode of Uh, Keep It. Oh, my God. We're now
2: getting to, when you spin the wheel on Wheel of Fortune, the amounts you can spin. (laughs) Actually, now it's, I think, 500's lowest, but you used to be able to spin 250. Anyway, that's how
1: big we are. Mm, You know, uh, in the days when America hadn't printed enough money.
2: That's right. Correct. Wow. Your Salon.com essay right here. Okay.
1: (laughs) the wheel of fortune as a metaphor for uh american capitalism
2: yes uh you do not want pat sajak to weigh in i guarantee it (laughs) i forgot that he's crazy now i it really is unfortunate because he's so down the line i i I would say hilarious on wheel of fortune and then you see a picture of him Mm -hmm. with marjorie taylor green it's like i i i don't know another republican who's That, like, on the level funny on one hand, like, for real and, like, smooth and then seemingly demented otherwise.
1: You know, it's it's like Dennis Miller. You can kind of see the dementedness anyway. Mm -hmm. I would say that – I mean, aren't we – we're never shocked when we find out that, like, those Republicans or, um, you know, conservative types are the – they really want it to work in, like, the industry – Yes, uh, right. Oh, no, like, happen, um, so yes, right. And that it didn't happen so they become Yes, right. Mm-hmm, uh mm-hmm. her stand up, her famous stand up. Um and it, I truly feel like Marjorie Taylor Green like she's probably like watching like Pat Sajak being like she wanted to be um Van Oh God! Well, that's you a, know, You just said something be... bone chilling. I I absolutely,
2: I absolutely cannot even consider that reality.
1: And you've said something very triggering to me. So I'm imagining an All About Eve with Vanna White and Marjorie Taylor Green.
2: By the way, there already is an All About Eve with Vanna White because Pat Sajak's daughter Mag- <laughs> Maggie Sajak, Sajak, is their social correspondent, and she is always wearing an evening gown and lingering behind the letterboard. <laughs> You can go on her socials and she gives you the inside scoop on certain episodes. Bana, you gotta watch your back.
1: Uh I can't I was gonna I was gonna start this by saying um I've said and we're back 250 times. Oh but, yes. I mean I haven't done 250 total episodes. Of oh, the that's show. true. So yeah, this is th- yeah. this is
2: actually an uneventful episode altogether. But Yeah.
1: I love the um I, I'm imagining like the keep it wikipedia like a sitcom wikipedia um where it has like Arab madison like louis vertel like it has like the number of episodes we were each on right i wonder if i'm more than you then i guess i am you are i think you're like 248 or 249 wow you rarely miss an episode
2: no it, it's sort of like er where you realize like oh i don't know who you would be on er <laughs> anthony edwards and then i like i'm the noah wiley who is secretly there way more <laughs>
1: Um, And speaking of um, Sitcoms You know We have the fantastic Paul Reiser On our episode This week And he's as Uh, rad
2: As you would expect I just want to say So we taped his uh, Segment before this He does get one thing wrong That I I didn't want to Correct him about He says that Ellen Arkin was nominated For Wait Until Dark He was not He was nominated For The Russians Are Coming The Russians Are Coming Which he did get right And also The Heart Is a Lonely Hunter Which is so boring I can't sit through it Go ahead (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> You're not a Carson McCullers fan? Not not these days, no. Uh, actually, uh, wait, Carson McCullers is the member of the wedding, right? Julie Harris, 1952. That's a good mm-hmm.
1: performance. Yeah, yeah. I, ha- I literally have The Heart is a Lonely Hunter uh, sitting on um, my kitchen table. Because I got it to read it. I got it to read it for the first time because a friend of mine, uh, I think we were talking about Truman Capote and then he was like, and you know, like Carson McCullers and the relationship. And he was like, well, you've never read Carson though. So you should, you should read um, Heart is a Lonely Hunter and Member of the Wedding. So I bought both.
2: Oh, okay. Well, report back when this, we can get into our Southern Gothic Uh, uh, (laughs) offshoot keep it.
1: Not really got it. I'll do a sugar baker monologue. It'll be great. great. Oh, good, Uh, good, good. That's what the kids like. I love how that's like a modern (laughs) reference for us. You know, Delta Burke, we're up to date. (laughs) Um, Speaking of reporting back, I need to let you know that I experienced um, one of the most insane things of my life this weekend. Which was? And that is bravo con
2: yeah the reports back it was giving altamont uh i was worried <laughs> i was like this might be the end of Ira's life yeah.
1: so i w- it was a so it's a three-day convention for bravo the yes. network which is <laughs> correct i don't think there's been anything like this since like i don't know like going to see wwe like oh, a, wow. a convention dedicated to like an entire network seems weird like where where was tgif con when we were kids
2: right though I, I feel like those people like that maybe did things like mall tours but it was never as organized as this never as like we're packed in this fucking room and it's like the Lu, the
1: roe uh, uh pants of conventions where like superstars show up <laughs> uh but i feel like The WWE thing is apt because, you know, we watch Real Housewives and these things on Bravo and obviously, you know, it's reality TV and they're playing themselves, but they're also playing a role with one another, you know, and self-producing and, you know, doing storylines, etc. It is another level seeing them do reunions after, you know, they film the season where they're able to comment on like how people Watch the season and like storylines that came up, etc. But it's another thing to watch that happening on a stage with a live audience cheering, booing, <laughs> chanting oh, like their favorite quotes. Like it it truly felt like a wrestling match. Yeah. Like people Jerry turning Springer. into yeah, people turning into heels and faces like before your very eyes. And it was so we surreal it was very surreal to watch
2: were the women of those shows prepared for that do
1: you think they knew it would be that octane they were they were i think then they feed off of it too you know one of the funniest things is like um you will be walking through the convention center and like the regular convention center is just like it's set up with just like booths and things because let me tell you if you're on bravo you're selling something right (laughs) Whether whether, yeah. whether, it's fa- whether it's face wash or a wine or just merch with, like, one of your uh, catch quotes on it. Um, so everyone has a booth. And, you know, like, the, the funny part is the varying um, differences in quality. Um took, like, 20,000 20, years to get She by Sheree um, out there. And the quality varies so much. You know, like, She by Sheree is giving Sheen by Sheree. Mm. Um, but then there are some people who are like, oh, these products are good. Um, you know, like, um, that, that's always shocking. But one of the weirdest things is like, you'll be in the convention center and obviously like the, um, housewives and people like have to get from like, um, panel to panel or, you know, like they're going to their booth and they're like being flanked by security, depending on how big they are. Um, just random points throughout the day, you'll hear screams, like screams of elation and you look over and it's like, you would expect to see like the fucking Beatles, you know, like being like ushered through, like it's Beyonce. People are screaming and you look and it's like, Countess (laughs) Luann. Again, I've I've
2: invoked this uh, quote before. Um, Grace Helbig, former YouTuber saying the definition of talent is changing. And when, When people are screaming for Countess Luann, I mean, it's I mean, it's just so funny. I mean, it's like, I get that she's an institution at this point. I just remember when she debuted on this show and she was sort of the most obviously pretentious of them. You know, like, like mm-hmm. oh, th- th- who cares, et cetera. And now she's been there so long. It's like the grand dame of the show.
1: Yeah, I mean, and there was the grand dame herself, Karen Huger from Rojas, What's of Potomac. And, you know, <laughs> when I call them my favorite franchise, I think they're, you know, like being, having seen years of these other Bravo women like morph through to what they need to become. Um, they're the show that's most adept at like adapting and like being like they're having they're having real fun. When they argue mm. with each other, like some of the other women like they truly do hate each other. And that like they they cut d- those fights are deep. But the Potomac cast is more so like wrestling where like they'll battle with each other, but they're like on the panel, they were specifically being like, but we're good now but you know like we 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 know what we have to do for the show
2: right right i see yeah. i see mhm I, I guess i guess drag con would be kind of similar you know yeah
1: like that um speaking of the concept of talent changing Lewis, i wish you'd been there with me because let me tell you something i felt like sally field in the mall and soap dish <laughs> the amount, oh, people knew you the crossover yeah. well cuz like the there's a big percentage of Keep It fans who are also Bravo fans. Right. And the, I was stopped constantly, Lewis. Our fans are lovely. Um, but the fact that they are like – could spot me through like a crowd of people and they're like, that's Ira.
2: I have to say – the times I, like i get recognized from the podcast it's super flattering because of course you can't see a podcast so it means they've done the homework yeah. to look up who we are anyway i think it's maybe the most ideal way to be quote unquote recognized mm-hmm. you know people just they they know who you are they've done the homework and they come mm-hmm. up to me and they bring up like hey i'm a big fan of tuesday weld too or some actress
1: yeah you know what's interesting is that they would um you know, they'd ask about you, of course, but then they'd ask about specific topics that we talk about. Uh but I also forget that it's not just listeners, you know, because now that we have YouTube and Snapchat and everything, I encounter more people now who are like, um, I watch Keep It Every Week.
2: Oh yeah, right. No, I forget that we're visual stars. We're, you know, real Carol Burnett check <laughs> going
1: on here. We started as a radio drama, and now...
2: (laughs) We're like Guiding Light. Yes, right. We we started in the 1870s, and finally we're canceled mercifully in 2008.
1: My literal reference was going to be Guiding Light, so thank you.
2: I do have a little bit of soap opera cue, a little bit. I know that's your department, but I've 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 got a foot
1: in that. We've already said we've got Paul Reiser here, and unfortunately, sadly... Truly, as soon as we finished recording last week, Angela Lansbury died.
2: I I, I just want to say there's there's something that happens with <laughs> actresses of a certain age passing away where people ask if I'm okay. Like, guys, I, I'm not like on the brink. <laughs> it's like, if, <laughs> though. Funny enough, um, we'll get into this. I had I uh, officiated my cousin Brianna's wedding in the Twin Cities, and I was flying back, and on the way back. Uh, This is a week and a half ago. I was watching National Velvet, which Angela Lansbury is in. And I had the thought, it is crazy. There is a living adult cast member of this fucking movie. And then, I, so in a way, I do feel I cursed it. So apologies to everybody.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You were her People magazine cover. Yes, right. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to talk about Dame Angela Lansbury. Mm -hmm. An actual dame. Um, I feel like I put that title in front of British um, people all the time. Just
2: yeah, uh, uh, yeah, Dame no. uh, Ed Ed Westwick. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. He's still waiting. You know what? Yeah, right. Prince Prince Charles might be the one to give Ed Westwick that title. That's true, right? It gets a little dicey over there. Yeah, um, and then also we're going to talk about the critical responses to um, Tar and general um, responses to critics and their reviews. So um, should be a fun episode. Yeah, lots to talk about. Lots of special guests. There are no special guests. But though I do want
2: to say, <laughs> I actually wanted to start this episode by lamenting that Taylor Hale is not here. We will do everything in our power to bring her back. Because literally in the middle of the episode, between segments, I leaned in over Zoom and said to her, I just want you to know I'm having such a good time. So just to let you know, we love her
1: as much as you do. <laughs> uh, we love Taylor, too. Like, t- Taylor was, like, a fantastic co-host. People are like, Taylor Hale, full time. I'm like, I, we don't want to bore Taylor Hale right. when we start talking <laughs> about things like like Angela Lansbury. Yeah, like knots and Broomsticks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would be like, you've seen knots and Broomsticks? She's like, you know, um, I was actually in the Big Brother house for my entire um life so no, i've never seen that if we're gonna find (laughs) out it was a truman show situation yes Mm -hmm. (laughs) all right we will be right back with more keep if listening to crooked shows in your podcast app is simply not enough check out the crooked radio takeover every weekend in october on sirius xm progress and on the sirius xm app It's a great new way to hear and discover all of the great voices and shows across the Crooked universe ahead of the midterms, but mostly ours. Right. Crooked listeners can get
2: up to four months free, so you can check it out at SiriusXM.com slash Crooked.
1: Dame Angela Lansbury, the icon of stage and screen, passed away at age 96 last week best known for her roles in my personal fave the Manchurian candidate yes and also Beauty and the Beast murdera she wrote Sweeney Todd um she was a decorated Broadway actor humanitarian and truly like we throw the word around we throw the phrase gay icon around a lot but she was that I mean she had she got us into Disney. She got us into Sondheim. She got us into um, being in your neighbor's business and solving murder mysteries. Yes. Uh, and with Manchurian Candidate, you know, all the Oedipal shit going on, what well, gay man doesn't relate to that?
2: <laughs> You're right. Everybody has an in somehow, someway. <laughs> as creepy as possible. She also has that thing that I think a gay icon should necessarily have, which is there's a broad appeal to what they do. And even like a familial comforting thing but if you lean in a little closer you realize there's a real saucy wit going on there like if you for those who care there's something there's an there's an eyebrow raise for those who are paying attention Mm. and she routinely had that uh throughout her career i mean some something that's come up a lot this week is the movie gaslight which she debuted in this is 1944 Mm. we just talked to isabella rossellini it came up came up then because uh her mom ingrid bergman is the star Charles Boyer, one of the great creepy men of cinema, uh, is uh, gaslighting Ingrid Bergman. And then uh, Angela Lansbury comes in and plays the Cockney maid, who is sort of instrumental in driving Ingrid to the brink. But man, for that to be a first performance, because first of all, nothing about that character says, be 19 years old, which she is in that. <laughs> it's so assured, her her kind of blank, um, kind of brutal take on the lines, but but that also has humor in it. She's sort of unfazed by what's going on and then also indicating she's willing to participate. Um, It's just one of the great debut performances ever. And uh, that was the first of her three nominations. She was also nominated for The Picture of Dorian Gray the next year. And I want to say about that movie, um, I mean, watch it if you're not familiar with the Oscar Wilde original tale picture of Dorian Gray, but there are a couple of um, Easter eggs in it for people who want to get to know Angela Lansbury. First of all, I think that was the first time she ever sang. So you can see her, I think it's called The Little Bird is the name of the song, but you can see her um, debuting her singing chops there, and they are stellar. It's a very old-fashioned song. Uh, and two, people forget that Angela Lansbury was the daughter of an actress, and she's in that movie with her mom, Moyna McGill, who plays uh, the Duchess.
1: Uh, mm. another th- Nepo baby. I get that's it. Right.
2: <laughs> that's what this is turning into. <laughs> Stop celebrating her. Stop celebrating this hack. Um, but um it's my least favorite of her three nominated performances, but that it's it's good to revisit for that reason. I mean, Donna Reed is in it. so No, love the cast. And then uh, literally at the time, the guy who plays Dorian Gray, Hurd Hatfield, not a genius performance. I mean, this is what he's basically known for altogether. But he was an icon of that time. I remember my grandfather constantly bringing up Heard Hatfield,
1: um, s- strangely. So check it out. It is hard to discuss Angela Lansbury just sort of like in this context now because, like you said, there are so many fucking entry points for this woman.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I discovered Manchurian Candidate, I think, around like high school, and that's truly one of my favorite films ever. And um one of the first it's, true it's great paranoid thriller movies. Yes. Um I missed the era of paranoid thrillers, and you know, there's the 70s era, like, you know, three days of the condor and stuff yep. like that. But there Clute. was there was something really there's something really just fun about like a black and white um era um paranoid thriller like that like shadow of a doubt you know like there's something about the acting in those just just feels so i don't know visceral and it's yeah, heightened. um it's yeah tight i mean like you know like um we talked with Paul Reiser a bit in a bit about um sitcoms of his day you know like um my two dads and stuff where it was very much focused on the face and those are films that focus on the face, oh, you yeah. know, like actors, she, Angela Lansbury came up in the era of acting where you had to have a good face that people wanted to look at and an emotive face. Okay. Like there was no <laughs> Botox here. Yeah. <laughs> people yeah. had to move their face and like you were moved by someone's face.
2: Yeah. I would, I would almost call it, um, based on the level of drama, they had to bring stage acting for the screen, you know, uh, mm. you know, j- just that level of like, uh, and, the, and the, maybe the last Movie to do that extremely well was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is all dramatic close-ups and people bringing you like the fire stairs and the you know the the, the chattering and uh,
1: all the things we love mm. in close-up. Um, yeah, well, that and um, if you were working at Equity when Paul, Patty Lupone um, <laughs> renounced her membership, <laughs> what a, a lot a crazy of dramatic tweet. close-ups.
2: <laughs> yes, <laughs> Patty Lapone dropped out of Equity, and her last line of the tweet is "Figure it out." my friends and i have been obsessed recently with saying grow up to each other and i feel like figure it out is the new iteration of that
1: i mean i love a throwback to summer sanders
2: oh Uh, my god yes by the way uh, okay we need to not talk about figure it out right now but summer sanders on that show was like 24 years old i can't get over that (laughs) i thought of her as like you know an older adult you know helping us uh fill out billy the answer head together but no she was (laughs) barely out of college, basically, because she was an Olympic gold medalist (laughs) right before then.
3: Anyway, Angela
2: Angela Lansbury. um, She really has that Julie Andrews quality of being both immediately knowable, like someone you feel like is in your family, but at the same time, so transcendent and untouchable. Like there's you almost can't define what that space is in between those two things. And she really exhibited that well. And I mean, one of the crimes of the century is that she never ended up getting the Emmy. She was nominated 12 Mm -hmm. years in a row for um, murder. She wrote, I want to say I can name all six of the women she lost to, which are both Cagney and Lacey, Sharon Glass, Ty and Daly, Kathy Baker Mm -hmm. from picket fences, see Ward from sister sisters, Patricia Weddig. From thirty something, and Dana Delaney twice for *China Beach*. So I think all of those actresses should speak up and say that they are sorry, because history <laughs> has a hole in it
1: thanks to them. Well, not Miss Celia Ward, okay? Not too much on Celia Ward. We
2: do love Miss Celia Ward. When Celia Ward <laughs> reappeared in uh, *Gone Girl*, that's when I screamed. I, then I was *Gone Girl*.
1: See? <laughs> Honestly, I mean, not, not to not to divert on her um for a minute too but i feel like Celia ward we we need a we need to keep it appearance in 2023 i have a lot to say to Celia ward
2: (laughs) it'll start with a poem this
1: this is a potential mother
2: (laughs) okay i have to say ever since
1: you posted this meme
2: of some i don't know who this woman is on housewives saying this is a potential mother
1: i say it every i
2: say it every fucking day (laughs) i'm obsessed with the mole right now the new season on the on netflix which we brought up last week Every time Mm -hmm. Avery, who's like sort of the girl we're rooting for on the show, appears, I'm like, this is a potential mother.
1: (laughs) (laughs) My grandmother literally just texted me while we were recording. "Uh, I think Avery is the mole. What's your guess? Because (laughs) we used to watch the original mole um, with Anderson Cooper together. Um, Like Mm. we, we would watch it every week together. And so I text her every Friday. I'm like, there are new episodes of the mole. You need to watch it so that we can talk about it.
2: Wow, that you're watching it with your family. Anybody who starts watching that show, by the way, gets addicted. So just be prepared. It could happen to you. I have literally watched all the existing episodes of this season twice. And I cannot believe I have to wait three more days. for. uh, It's Tuesday right now. Three more days for this episode to come out.
1: But speaking of that and mysteries, um, do you know Angela Lansbury's final role is in Glass Onion? Right. And too. she's
2: playing herself along with Steven Sondheim. Steven Sondheim. Which, which means this was filming way earlier than I thought it was.
1: Yeah. So. Because Angela um, Lansbury,
2: as I noticed, did not appear at the Tony's this year where she got that lifetime tribute. And I s- suspected something was awry at that moment. I, I was calling doctors and I don't know many. So it
1: was like two. <laughs> and then she left us. Uh, yeah. So
2: I, I hope she's sensational. It was so nice seeing her in uh, Mary Poppins Returns at the end.
1: Yeah, I mean, fuck Queen Elizabeth. Can I? I was I was I was queuing, um, I was queuing in Times Square to say goodbye to Angela Lansbury yeah, when I was in New absolutely. York. Absolutely. Okay? Yeah, we should be
2: light. I should be dimming this ring light right now.
1: <laughs> um, one of the films that I feel like um people brought up a lot uh, after she passed was Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Of course, obviously, because and that is that is such an interesting one because um. It is a film that, you know, came out in um, 1971, but it feels like such a staple of my childhood, and I'm sure yours, probably just because, you know, Disney being omnipresent as we were kids. But, like, I feel like it re-aired on TV, but also at some point... I definitely had, you know, like we were talking about those boxy VHSs that Disney used to put out um, last week with Taylor. Um, I definitely had Knots and Broomsticks, and I watched that movie constantly. And it's obviously um, better than um, the one that's just like it, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang.
2: Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, also, it's just one of those movies like, like Willy Wonka that somehow – came from that era and and just survived like we, we kept watching it like i i don't remember a time in my childhood without it um it's it's also like one of the few movies your parents passed down to you i think like
1: oh that's safe for them mm-hmm. to watch or whatever um but it's uh, wild that mm-hmm. it's not it's wild that that film has no uh, that it only has the staying power of the film itself you know you bring up Willy walker or something like and there's multiple versions of that and like even the new one coming out with timmy chalamet and it's like it's weird that no one has tried to reboot or do anything else with bed nods and broomsticks there was a musical adaptation like like early 2010s but
2: no you're right like if we get a hocus pocus too you're telling me we don't get a bed nods and Broomsticks? also what are we saying they will reboot reboot it
1: <laughs> <laughs> she probably had an ironclad agreement with disney we're not rebooting that shit right <laughs> And now that she's gone now that she's gone, Kevin Feige, he's putting the bed knobs and the broomsticks in the Marvel Cinematic Universe.
2: <laughs> well, it's funny that you say that because she famously <laughs> objected to the reboot of
1: Murder, She Wrote, right? With Octavia mm-hmm. Spencer. Remember when that was supposed to happen? Yeah. And truly one of the instances where um, I feel like tweets actually did doom a reboot. Like they they ended that shit very quickly.
2: That reminds me of when there was supposed to be, I think, an adaptation of that book about Joni Mitchell, Carly Simon, and Carole King, and Taylor Swift was initially, initially in talks to play Joni Mitchell, and Joni Mitchell, who, by the way, if you watch some Joni Mitchell interviews, I mean, the woman is unsparing. Uh, she's unkind to several of her own contemporaries, says, to, says about Taylor Swift, they just found a blonde girl with high cheekbones. Like woof. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, she she was not confident in her ability to bring
1: Joni to the screen. Uh, I want to say I want to do a quick side note too and say that I saw a tweet or like, I think it was a TikTok actually uh, that reminded us Amy Winehouse and Taylor Swift were nominated for Best New Artist in the same year at the Grammys. That, that seems crazy. That's 2007 because I would have been in college then. Yeah, Taylor Swift has been ala- around that long. It's wild because you re- forget that her country era when she was, like, you know, like, 15, 16, like, was predates, you know, the poppier era. So she was around. Yeah. And, you know, people were listening to her. Like, I feel like, um, oh, I remember she covered rehab and Amy Winehouse went to a show of Taylor's. Like, they met each other.
2: And then that's when she chose to pass away. Isn't that, isn't that something? <laughs> She's like, I'm, I'm heading out.
3: <laughs> Actually, I'm oh, sure it was Swifties good. The are going to
2: murder you. <laughs>
3: Taylor
1: has done a bunch of
2: kind of good live covers over the year. One time Taylor covered um, A Sort of Fairy Tale by Tori Amos. That I respect.
1: Mm, yeah.
2: Um, anyway, back to Angela Lansbury. Sorry.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, the big Disney one that we know Angela Lansbury for is just her voice, Mrs. Potts. And I... I mean, who, as a kid, especially if you're a gay one, like, didn't um, t- recreate that voice, S- Seeing, you know, like Taylor's all this time, exactly how um, she did, and honestly, one of the most heartwarming, like, mother son relationships for me on cin- in cinema ever is um, Chip and Mrs. Potts.
2: Totally, I think she it, almost single handedly is the elegance that elevates that movie to something. That should be a Best Picture nominee, and it was. You know, mm. you know th- that's what sets it apart from all the other Disney movies that time, why it's still there's something still crystalline about Beauty and the Beast, even compared to Aladdin, which was you know, similarly super successful, or The Lion King, or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. No, she's a, a magical voice talent. Now, what's your favorite
1: Angela Lansbury musical performance? Uh, you know. It's, it's, you know, like, a, a, lot, a lot of the gays were talking about Mame mm-hmm. um, this weekend, but for me, it's still Mrs. Lovett and Sweeney Todd. I would she be surprised if so, you didn't say that, yeah. There's a reason that's my favorite musical, and it is because in college I saw, you know, the stage production that they filmed, and I, I've never been able to get that show out of my mind.
2: Uh, I saw a clip that went viral again after Angela died where she's watching an old um, clip of her and Gypsy, I believe. And mm-hmm. first of all, it's awesome just to watch Angela Lansbury watch herself because she really has a sort of diagnostician's eye while she's doing it. Like, it's it, she, she is a bit emotional at the end, but she's mostly watching it like a scary drama teacher analyzing a student, so that's fun. But, man, you forget, like, the gale force power of her. Again, it's like, it, it's something that, sets her apart from someone like Julie Andrews, who I think through and through was pretty delicate with whatever she did, even in something like Victor Victoria. But Angela Lansbury will freak you the fuck out, and she will, like, you know, make you stand back. And uh, I think it's it's a quality about her that people underestimate.
1: Yeah. Um, Also, I want to say, speaking of Mame, unfortunately, I have never seen Mame on stage. And so... My name to me is Lucille Ball. Which is
2: one of the most shocking things you'll ever see in a movie. <laughs> you do have Bea Arthur there to soften the blow. But watching Lucille Ball be not Lucy and be May yeah. is, I mean, it's just not
1: right. I mean, it's just. <laughs> the movie actually horrifying. And I think it's actually why I don't like the musical. Well, it discolors what you think of it. Yeah. 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 Um, but um no no one is thinking of um no one's thinking of the king and i let's be honest oh, Right, right right um uh,
2: I, we should just drop the trivia fact that Angela Lansbury's daughter narrowly escaped being a Manson cult member they in fact fled okay, Los Angeles for that <laughs> this week
1: too and uh, i need i need anyone but Ryan Murphy to get their hands on the rights to that story first i cannot do it i cannot deal with manson being on netflix the number one show for 50 weeks or whatever and it's about you know like from like angela lansbury and like saving her daughter's life's perspective like i'm not gonna do it
2: though you know what i do think sarah paulson could play angela lansbury from around that time i will say that she absolutely
1: could but you know what let someone else cast her okay so all right all right okay that's that's true other people are available so escape the ryan murphy ghetto sarah paul said (laughs) or would i tell you that i turned on netflix and i saw the watcher and i was like oh like another new show is number one and then i looked and i saw another ryan murphy production like who's watching her Right. It's, it's interesting. Uh, uh, no. And for a while, I thought at Netflix he wasn't doing that well. And now he's like the king of Netflix somehow. It's like he recorded 50 things and one, like it's, it's Tyler Perry Productions over there. <laughs> yeah. Right. Every day, something new. How is that even possible? Uh, Ryan Murphy also grew up homeless in his um, car and um, is best friends with Oprah. So, you know, same thing. <laughs>
2: it works out. Anyway, Angela Lansbury—that's about as long a life as you can expect from a living legend, and also as much time as you can expect from someone to give grade A material. This is somebody I saw perform in *Blythe Spirit* and in my thirties. So, um, I mean, that's fucking crazy. So that she was also a co-star of Charles Boyer *Once Upon a Time*, a co-star of um, Dame May Whitty. You know, so. Thank God we got as much time with her as we did. And I just want to say, I brought up National Velvet earlier. My favorite parents in a film are uh, Donald Crisp and Anne Revere, who won an Oscar for that movie, in National Velvet. Watch that movie for the best parents ever.
1: What's your favorite um, sort of like unexpected um, Angela Lansbury role or something that like people haven't really been bringing up this week?
2: Well, we, we talked about Manchurian Candidate quickly. Um, mm. I think that still is the answer. Uh, also, just like the way she, I mean, abuses that kid, Lawrence Harvey, who plays the, the person in question, interesting actor, because he burned really hot for a few years and then died somewhat suddenly, I believe, of alcoholism and all sorts of other vices. But he's somebody who is basically known for great performances alongside even greater female performances. So he uh, was in Room at the Top with Simone Signore. She won Best Actress for that. He's the man in Butterfield 8 with Elizabeth Taylor, which is a daffy movie that she is sensational in. Do not let anybody shade that Oscar win for you. It has been shaded over time. And also... I mean,
1: Butterfield 8, by the way, has, like, last through pop culture through... Drag Race.
2: Yes, the, uh, the lipstick oh, on the, the mirror right. is essentially from Butterfield. and He's also in uh, Darling with Julie Christie, which she won Best Actress for anyway. But um, it, it, Angela Lansbury is so throbbingly um, uh, 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 intense and c- kind of frightening in uh, uh, that movie. So I would say that. What would you say? Uh, death on the Nile. I mean, Man-Currying oh, Candidate I is my favorite. I love Death on the Nile. I love yeah. Death on the Nile.
1: Yeah, but Death is like a close second. So, I mean, the cast is stacked. We always talk about Mia Farrow in that film, but, you know, Maggie Smith, Betty Davis. Betty Davis, who's just,
2: if if I remember correctly, sitting by herself on a layer of the boat that nobody else can get to. Like, she's like (laughs) in the sky somehow. And uh, yeah, the actual mystery of it is very labyrinthine. The ending is crazy, but still makes way more sense than Murder on the Orient Express. I'm sure you guys have seen the two reboots by Kenneth Branagh. Stick to the originals.
1: He is. I am. He's making a new one, and I'm, I'm. I'm. I'm sort of. I'm sort of like accepting the fact that we're gonna get a mid Agatha Christie adaptation from Kenneth Branagh, like every two years now.
2: At least this new one I haven't seen done before, so maybe mm. there'll be some novelty in letting the story unfold. Because I'm. I'm not like an Agatha Christie scholar or anything. I just know like the main ones, so mm-hmm. that'll be something. Uh, yeah, Tina Fey is allegedly in it, right? I just have to yeah. say. I get a little nervous about Tina when she's in things she didn't write. Because I saw a couple of those movies, and I forgot that I was a huge Tina stan watching them.
1: Why did you make me remember Whiskey Tango Foxtrot? That's
2: what I'm talking about. Or, um, this is where (laughs) I leave you? There was like an ensemble cast, and I was like, woof, Tina, was was Jennifer Aniston not available? You know, one of those things.
1: (laughs) The morning show is very... It's very time-consuming, so <laughs> Jennifer is not available. I guess not, yeah. <laughs> All right, when we are back, we're joined by the fantastic Paul Reiser. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis, yes. when you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams robe. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? (laughs) (laughs) No? Uh, If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today,
2: told from a unique black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations. There's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths.
1: Black perspectives have not always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience.
0: On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my word. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG 13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13.
1: Our next guest you have seen in things like Aliens, Mad About You, Whiplash, most recently Stranger Things. But now his new show, Reboot, is out on Hulu. We are delighted to welcome to keep it the great Paul Reiser. The great.
4: That's special. Thank you. (laughs) Pleasure to be here. (laughs) I think great is apt. You you said that in a traditional
2: Paul Reiser withering way which we appreciate also. Thank you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I want to say that um first off my name is Ira. Um but having grown up in Milwaukee um where I didn't encounter anyone else named Ira until <laughs> like I went to college. Uh, um The only other time I heard the name was watching Mad About You.
4: (laughs) Cousin Ira. Well, we did that for you.
1: We wanted you to be included. Cousin Ira.
4: Yeah, you know, there are certain names that they just, you don't see a lot of them for a bunch of years. Like now, in 2022, are there babies being born named Howie? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know that that's... (laughs) Because there are, there are names that are so old that they become cool again, you know, Murray or, you know, old, <laughs> old guy names. But Howie hasn't been around long enough to be an old guy name. So uh, now why were you named Ira? Was there a, – a, oh, oh, there were three. There were two before you.
1: There were three, Yeah. Uh, so it was a, <laughs> a lineage you know, that, thing.
4: It was sort of written in the stars, no way out of it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I, right.
2: the names that I still associate with "quote unquote" young people are not named. Nobody names them after. Like there are no Jessicas anymore. I, I feel like that cycle has really sped up.
4: That can't be true.
2: I feel like they're not they're around. around. Yeah, <laughs> there, there's no Talk Lindsay's women, anymore. There's no Lindsay's <laughs> anymore.
4: Yeah, yeah. I don't know of a new of a new Stewie. Just. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, I, I'm glad glad to have helped you in your in your childhood.
1: Thank you, thank you. And um, I mean, speaking about um that show, you were in reboot, which is about rebooting a sitcom. Yeah. Um, and you were just in recently a reboot of Mad About You, but although technically not a reboot. Uh, the, thank the, you. I, I always, I'm always, um, forgetting the exact words. It's a return, a continuation. It's a, it's a yes. sequel, I, a continuation. I-
4: I get uh, mocked mercilessly by my castmates on a reboot because whenever this issue comes up and I, and I make a point of saying "Mad about you wasn't a reboot because in my mind, reboot is let's go back and pretend that it's the same, but we're just going to do it again. And in mad about you's case, we were very specific. No, we're not at all trying to pretend it's 1992. We're not pretending we're 29 and 30 again. No, we're coming back because we haven't seen these folks for 20 plus years. So let's actually pick up now. Where are they? They're older. They walk slower. They don't hear as well. Their kid is a pain in the neck. Um, so it was definitely where would they have been 20 years later? But yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's a reboot. But reboot, the show reboot is indeed a fact, uh, in fact, a show about a cast trying to come back. Although in within our show, the new young writer is trying to make it different and and uh, socially conscious and and more lifelike. And, and the fun of it is that my character plays the guy who wants to keep it sitcom, cutesy, old, jokey. Um, and that's a, a big part of the generational divide there.
2: How appealing was a show that gives people <clears throat> a glimpse behind the scenes and, and into perhaps the cynicism of making a TV show? Did you read the script and think, oh, these are some of the thoughts I've had about making TV at any given point in my career?
4: Well, it's funny. You know, one of the concerns that we hear all the time is like, were you worried it would be too inside baseball? And the truth is it's not because the show is really about these characters who could be in any workplace. They could be in, you know, in an office. They could be in the post office. They could be at whatever. You know, they all have human problems they just happen to be on this show. And yes, there are a couple of things. There are a couple of lines here and there that I go, I don't know anybody's going to understand that, but it doesn't diminish your enjoyment. You know, there are a couple of things that as somebody who's been in television, you go, wow, that's a sentence I only hear in a writer's room. Uh, There's one line where somebody comes in and says, do you want us to work on the tag or blue sky? The next episode. I went, Blue sky. I don't even, I don't (laughs) Never even use that word. Uh, (laughs) Work on the tag. And I thought, yeah, tag is something you only have in half hour sitcoms. Um, But it was very appealing because it is sort of like having your cake and eating it too. For me, it's like, I I wasn't particularly, I'm not eager to do another multicam sitcom. And I don't, I don't imagine I would, but you, you never know. But this was sort of about that, but it wasn't that. So it was the reverse angle. So you see it's about the writers and the actors, and it's not about the show at all. Uh, and in fact, you know, it, it people say it's mocking the half-hour traditional sitcom, but in a way it is. It's poking fun, but it also very, it's very affectionate because all of us involved have had uh, experience and, and success in the half-hour sitcom world. So we're not... You know, we're not
1: going at it to bite the hand that has fed us. What's interesting about, um, I guess, you in the half-hour sitcom world is you've experienced um, different sort of iterations of it. You know, I have to imagine that um, My Two Dads was a lot different than the experience of making sitcoms around the Mad About You era and then even now, you know, working on something. Like, has has something about... um, what about making sitcoms that sort of changed for you for the better? And is there anything that you sort of miss from I don't know, like that first um, show where you feel like I miss this era of sitcoms or like something that we used to do?
4: No, I don't I don't I don't miss anything. But uh, you know <laughs> you know I was saying to somebody, you know, in the world of streaming now, uh, everything's available all the time forever. So mm-hmm. you never you never say, Oh yeah, I missed that. And I I realized, Oh, I miss missing. I, miss missing.
1: Ah,
4: I missed it. I was like, oh, now that just doesn't come up anymore. Um, you know, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no uniform, uh, feel or, or tone to, to, to half hour comedies. So in the eighties, there were sort of these family-oriented shows, but then there were other shows that had different tones. And in the 90s, when we were doing Mad About You, Friends was not really the same as Mad About You. Seinfeld was its own sensibility, and they were still making shows like Full House and so on, you know, that, that were conventional. So there was, there was always, it was never either or. There always were these things. You know, in Mad About You, we were very aware we were a half-hour television show, And we did it in front of a live audience, so we wanted to get those people. But we were also very – our sort of uh, mission statement was the characters themselves are not on a TV show. We know it's a TV show, but we want them to look like life. So a lot of times we would have someone pitch a great joke and you go, it's a little too – sounds like a joke. It sounds Mm -hmm. like somebody on a sitcom Mm -hmm. would say, it's funny and it's a great line, but it's going to pop the frame. It's going to make – you know, one of us look like, um, you know, cause in sitcoms, you know, somebody said, we'll send a zinger and the other person mm, and just sort of takes it. And then you move on <laughs> in real life. If somebody said that, you go, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> Why would you say that? And, you know, so, so, you know, and I think what's funny in, in reboot is the, the character played by Rachel Bloom comes into this wanting to, make it more lifelike you know and say well characters wouldn't say that there's a line in, and i think one of the early episodes where i said well, what if he comes in he trips on something and she says well you know people don't do that in real life they don't just trip exactly when you need them to trip and the my character says They can, if you write that. (laughs) 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 Yeah, they can kind of do whatever you say. But if you want it to look real, perhaps they don't trip on the Ottoman every time.
2: (laughs) Um, Speaking of zingers, something I was thinking about. Just what I like watching about you specifically. And I feel like you are one of the great reactors to someone saying something crazy or saying something um, provocative. Like you will then retort with something hilarious. You know, like Matthew Perry is another good example of that. Or, you know, the entire show Seinfeld. And obviously we associate that skill set with you and Helen Hunt. But do you have favorite co-stars that you've gotten to sort of react to and they throw something weird out and you get to come back with something funny or unexpected?
4: Uh, well, you know, with, with Helen Hunt, it was such a, we were lucky. We just, you know, when, when I was just writing the show, I met her and I just had this instinct. I went, I think her, and she wasn't at all what I looked, what I had in my mind. I was picturing my wife who doesn't look at all like Helen. And, and, uh, but there was something about her and we just really clicked. So the, the, the give and take was always there. And sometimes it was in quick repartee. Sometimes it was just in that that reaction where and and it is really fun when somebody says something and in real life you may take a second to go let me let that stay in the air and let you hear what you just said um you know one of my, one of my favorite laughs and it was early on one of the first maybe 10 or 12 mad about yous there was a a really wacky idea. We always we used to always joke that it's a show about the small things. And then once in a while, we'd have some crazy, crazy ass premise, and go, "Yeah, not so much the small thing." But we, anyway, in this one, the show was it was about virtual reality, and I went and invested with cousin Ira in this crazy at the time, it's '93, futuristic, a virtual reality show. So it was very kind of high tech. But the best, most fun scene, the fun most fun to write and play, was the scene of coming home. And we're in bed, and it's just the two of us, the two head, two shot, and I have to explain to my wife why I just invested a big chunk of our bank account into this crazy thing and she said, I said, "Oh, it's great. you can you can put yourself in any situation. you can do any activity you could fly, you could you know climb Mount Kilimanjaro, you can do anything and she's warming up. she said, "Well, what did you pick?" and I said I, I, I got a massage from Christy Brinkley and you just see." <laughs> Helen's head just turns ever so slightly to the side, like, hmm. And and the audience really went. I went, that was, to me, a landmark. I thought, we we are where we want to be. The audience now knows what's coming and what she's feeling and what trouble I'm in. You know, you you think of Archie Bunker and those silences. Mm -hmm. You know, just a cock of a head, and you just, and you just go, oh, I, you know these guys so well. It's funny if you ever watch uh, All in the Family again. Sometimes it'll come up on TV, and the shots are so tight. Yeah, they're just the head, and you go, that's enough. And like I, I don't need to see Archie Bunker's waist. I, I, this is where the funny is. This is where, and you, and you know them so well. So when in that little closed environment if Meathead says something that's going to bounce off Archie, you can feel it or, you know, and so those reactions, and on TV you get to see them even more so on the, than theater, right? You're, you're put the camera where you want so you can see a raised eyebrow and, um, and going back to sort of answer your question. I, you know, what's different because there are now comedies that don't have audiences and laugh track, but they're absolutely equally funny. It takes the pressure off them being jokes and, you know, you don't need to hear laugh, 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 laugh. So, you know, we did Kaminsky Method, and Chuck Lorre created that. He's the master. He's got, you know, a thousand shows on, multicam shows. But on this show, he admitted, he acknowledged that one of the things that he learned was you don't have to write for the joke. You can get the joke, you can get the funny in the pause and in the reaction. And so that has freed it up to be a little bit more cinematic and a little bit more realistic that you can see let it land and let it uh let a moment play without reaching too hard for a joke
1: mm. um i don't know what i just said I wanna, if
4: any of that makes sense feel free to use it
1: <laughs> <laughs> i want to ask you a bit about um your turn in um whiplash which i thought was really a fantastic um performance from you and it's such uh-huh. a film that i feel like um People Are still talking about Whiplash. I feel it's, it's one of Chazelle's, uh, maybe my favorite. Giselle I think it's film, my favorite, of his still, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, um, just sort of what was that experience like for you doing, um, the sort of like dramatic role that was also just sort of there's so much, um, I feel like there's sort of like a lot of longing in that role, but sort of a lot of anger too. Um,
4: yeah, I just, uh, I, I just saw a really funny clip. I don't know what it's from, but it was Sir Ian McKellen and Ricky Gervais and Sir Ian McKellen explaining what acting is. And, <laughs> and he says, What I do, you know, the whole thing is yeah, like it's a big secret. And he just says, What I do, like in, in Harry Potter, I'm not a wizard, or Lord of the Rings, whatever it was, he says, I'm not a wizard. Oh you know, Harry Potter. He said, but I pretend. To <laughs> And the words are written. And, and it's just, you know, it's like, like, there's no magic. Just here's the words. You pretend to be that. I'm not actually. But in in uh, Whiplash, you know, he had Damien Chazelle was freaking 26, I think, when he t- made that, and mm-hmm. 24 when he wrote it, which pisses me off. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, just crazy talented and a really sweet guy. And I had read the script. Actually, before I read the script, I had seen he made a, uh, sort of a short, a sample of the movie, just as, as as a sales tool to raise the money to make Whiplash. So he shot like eleven or seventeen minutes or something like that. The the, the middle scene where that first time you see the uh, J.K. Simmons, you know, throw the chair and you just go, "Oh my God, this guy is is out of his mind." And in this little film, Jake, it was a, it wasn't Miles Teller, it was a different young actor, but J.K. was in it, and it was great. It was just a demo film. You know, he made it for like eleven dollars, and I my thought was like, why is he making this into a full feature? This is great, and there was and there was no father. It was just that scene. I went, why? This is beautiful, and so then I read the script. And I said, oh, there's there's more to this story, and there's a father, and the, it was just really written beautifully and and suddenly. And you know, I have two kids uh, of my own, two boys who are now in their twenties, but they were younger when we made this, obviously, and one of the things. I don't know if either of you have kids. Uh, I already have kids. (laughs) No, all right, well. We just have this podcast. Find someone who does and get them to confirm this. You know, one of the things, the bittersweet truths is, well, you know this from having been kids, is that at a certain point, parents can only guide so much. And at a certain point, the kid's going to go, I understand, but I do want to jump out of a plane. I do want to you know, I do want to try these drugs. I do want to, so it's a, and it was, that was in the script in this thing of the father felt the pain and the horrible thing when your child is going through something and can't extricate themselves. And in that case, in whiplash, it's like not just some problem he has of himself. There's another outside guy fucking with his son and, um, you know, short of, assassinating the guy, (laughs) you know, like, you have to sort of let this play out and hope that it doesn't end too terribly. And, you know, and what Damien Chazelle wrote into that also was that the father was not a great achiever, you know, that he had wanted to be a novelist and didn't succeed, and now he teaches high school English. Okay. But a good dad, a good person. And, uh, you know, one of the beautiful pieces of writing in that is, and J.K. Simmons gorgeous performance you know when he he's just sort of acting friendly and he's oh tell me about your parents and and miles teller spills all the beans my father teaches it and then 20 minutes later he uses all that jk simmons uses all that as weapons he goes yeah your mommy left you and your father's a failure it's like oh jesus that's just it's so brutal he just shared this and now you're beating him up with it um so it was so the experience was great you know that was one of those things where. I knew it was going to be a beautiful film. I didn't know it would be a success. You never know that. Um, But I knew from seeing that short, and I said, well, this guy knows how to make a beautiful movie, and the script was so tense. And the first time I saw it was at Sundance, and and it was the premiere. It was the opening night, whatever they call that. It was like the the big opening event of Sundance in the big theater. There's one like 1,500, 2,000-seat theater, and I had not seen it. And it played like it was the exorcist. It's like people were like grabbing each other, strangers. It's like, oh, you know, this teacher just threw a chair at his head. What? And it's a it very was, tense
1: film. Oh. It's,
4: <laughs> and it's almost all the more tense because it's not special effects. Like, no, that's a chair. That's a guy's head. That's, oh, and, I, and I'm watching going, how did they film that? That really came close to his head. Um, And I remember afterwards, we had the screening, and the screening was just as good as it could be. And I remember, yeah, I don't know, we went to whatever the next event was or the party, and my wife and I were in the car with Damien and his wife, and Damien's just cool and, you know, reserved. And I said, do you understand that you are in the moment that every aspiring filmmaker wants to be? You just had your film kick-ass on the opening night in the theater, and there is literally, they talk about, well, there's buzz at Sundance. We're in that moment. He went, yeah, I guess so. I went, okay. I, mean, I don't know. What I, I don't know what I needed from him to, you know, to sell it more, but I was aware too, you know, I was like, Oh, this is what they talk about. Oh, it was the talk of Sundance. Like we're in that moment right now. You just blew the roof off. And, uh, the fact that it went on and won, I think five Academy awards, for screenplay and JK and editing was great. The, the you know, and, yeah, it was such a great film because in the script, if I recall the ending, it's just like, you know, sometimes you see one sentence that is supposed to be 15 minutes of film and then there's a big battle. Yeah, okay, you shoot it. you know, <laughs> And then there's a big uh, competition and then the band is great. I'm like, all right, well, maybe, but how are you going to do that? And, you know, and the last scene is all this tension of, who's screwing who is JK screwing the kid? Oh, the kid is, ah, the kid is screwing him. No, JK is actually a step ahead. And they do it with music and they fade out and they come in. And then the music itself was exciting and going, this is unbelievable. You actually made drama and tension out of a jazz band playing at a show. Like that could so easily not be great. And it was great.
2: Yeah, no, sonically very memorable. Uh, I, no, every year on Christmas, my uh, I, I, my family and I watch a movie together and my mom falls asleep during everything. And I was like, I'm going to do Whiplash and I guarantee she will stay awake through it. And that is the one time
4: she did. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because a parent can't watch that. A parent yes. can't watch a kid getting brutalized by a teacher and not uh, stay awake. Um,
2: I, I want to say something about the Kaminsky Method, which is I can't think of another show in the past like 10 years where the The level of legend involved is that staggering, and I just think of Alan Arkin in general, who has always been around and like has always been amazing. I think he's the only person who was nominated for an Oscar in the 1960s and the 2010s. Like that level of quality, like for that long, is just. Uh, do you have any particular memories of
4: working with those guys? Yeah, well, you know, Alan Arkin. There, there were there were a handful of guys that I uh, idolized. And I was never, as a kid, I was never, I was into comedians. I wasn't into acting, so I, you know, I didn't care. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I think it's when I was in my twenties, you start going, "Wow, this De Niro guy's cool. Oh. Al Pacino is great," but I didn't, I didn't watch and you know, and, and watch movies. Oh, James Stewart is, you know, whatever. But a few guys popped that I just loved as an audience. I go, I will watch anything with this guy, and it was Jack Lemon.
0: Mm-hmm. It was mm.
4: Peter Falk, of course. To 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 uh, you know an absurd degree, I, I adored Peter Falk and Alan Arkin. And I think the first time I saw Alan Arkin as a kid was in "The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming," and he played this Russian guy. It was so funny. And then then I saw um, "Wait Until Dark." Oh played, yes. He, he was nominated for that, and he plays this sinister murderer. And you go, that's the same guy. And then. There's a movie that I just watched. I watched recently called Poppy, where he plays a Puerto Rican uh, landlord, I think. And like I thought again, well, you couldn't do that. You couldn't have a non- Latino play a Puerto Rican guy, but he was brilliant in that. And there was something always so uh, off, in the best way, offbeat. His rhythm, his line readings. And I, I, I will watch an Alan Arkin movie and just, what did he just do with that line? It was so odd. And, and beautiful. And so when the in-laws came out, I go, Peter Falk and Alan Arkin? Yeah, I'm in. I must have seen that a hundred times. <laughs> and, and each of them plays to their, to their strengths. You know, and Alan Arkin, my understanding is Alan Arkin was producing that and he reached out to get Peter Falk and he thought we'd be funny together. And Peter Falk goes, yeah, sure. And he goes, I think maybe, you know, you should be making trouble for me. And Peter Falk went, whatever you say, say. Sure. But it was, you know, what Alan Arkin was the put upon uh, stressed guy in that he wasn't the, he wasn't the, the um, what's the, what's the word? Uh, you know, he wasn't the, I can't think of the word. He he was basically reacting. And Peter, what I, what I always loved about Peter, he was so funny and then so endearing and so touching and it can be moment to moment. It would switch off. And in the in-laws, which is a flat out comedy, part of what's so funny is it vacillates so quickly. You go, Well, oh, Peter Falk's character, he's obviously out of his fucking mind. This guy's crazy. And then a the second later go, Oh no, he's quite serious. He's he works with the CIA. There's no oh no, he's nuts. He's absolutely nuts. And that push and pull where and Alan Arkin is the guy trying to go, oh. and uh so, and I, I, you know, one of the joys of my life is I got to work with both of those guys. I wrote a movie for Peter Falk just cause I wanted to work with him. And it was called the thing about my folks that 15 people saw, but it was a dream come true. And he was, he was just brilliant. He was just great. He was just so great. And I, I loved him and Alan, you know, so um, I only got to do one episode of a with him. And one scene we were in this booth and, you know, and just watching him up close and getting a laugh out of him at one point where he was cracking up and he says, all right, man, you just make me laugh. I went, take me now, Lord. That's it. You. <laughs> I don't know that I need anything else above that. Um, you know, but I'll tell you, one of the sort of surprises, not surprises, but one thing that was revealed to me, Michael Douglas, I had, I had worked two little times with him. You know, I did a Movie that he was in and produced called uh, One Night at McCool's, and we had one scene together, and and then I had one day of work in the Liberace movie, and uh, so and I had, I had met him and I knew him, but I hadn't really spent time. So the first day we're working on Kaminsky, and we're in a car. I think it was the first thing we shot, and Michael was he just kind of playing it to what I thought was little low voiced and not particularly, uh, it was a little quiet and still. And in my idiot head, I'm going, I don't think he's going to like this. He he don't look so good. He's, he's, He's not doing anything. And then I watched the film. I go, this guy's a fucking genius. It was so, he's so precise. And he knows exactly, yes, here's the volume of this scene. And here's, you know, he was so in that character. And he's one of those guys I realized, he's been around so long and he's been doing it so well for so long that you can almost take it for granted and you don't notice it, but getting to see how he does it and, and how, how extensively he prepares and how well prepared he showed up. It's like, Oh, it was actually like going to acting class. So, um, you know, and I, so it was, it was an education for me to see how you, how you, how you get to be that good. Mm. Maybe. <laughs> you know? um, maybe, you know, maybe, you're lucky
1: you get to be that good. Uh I wanna ask you about one last actor you worked with. And this is um truly when I think about Paul reiser yes, bad about you, but when I think about why like my grandmother, like and my mom like love you, and I'm like, black people love Paul Riser. And it's like it's <laughs> it truly is Beverly Hills cop and you <laughs> in films with Eddie Murphy. And you know, if you're in if you're an Eddie Murphy film, especially the eighties, like we'll remember you because you'll, you'll that's also so, be on TV so all the time in our house.
4: <laughs> that's so true.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so funny. I mean, that, that,
4: you know, that's 40 years ago. And to this day, uh, I mean, people, yeah, that's really funny. And I, and I had such a tiny part in Ben Leo's comic. I was barely in it. And, um, we just shot Beverly Hills Cup four. And, you know, so... and that so it's coming. Was, it's That's coming. Great. And, uh, yeah, and I had, you know, two days of work on it. I had a little scene and it's 40 years later and we were in, and I'm looking at Eddie. And when we shot the first one, I already knew Eddie from the comedy club. So it was really, I wasn't, you know, so thunderstruck of like, oh my God, it's Eddie Murphy. It's like, oh, I know him. One thing I did learn is if you're on film, and I certainly knew this in the second one, if you're in a movie with Eddie Murphy. Just stand there and shut up. <laughs> just, <you> know, <laughs> going back to the original thing, like just reacting. There's a scene where people said, "Oh, and they'll do that scene." Oh, you're so funny. I go, "Yeah, I didn't say anything. That was Eddie. You're laughing at Eddie, but they show me looking at him. And I, go, no. I get to ride in on his his little wave because it's like, yeah, if you're with Eddie Murphy, you're gonna look better. So, um, but that in Beverly Hills Cup One, that scene in the locker room. And it was just, we had the scene and Eddie, we, I think we j- improvised a lot of it and he'd be like, nah, nah, I'm not listening to you. And they, you know, and I was just supposed to be peppering him. And and then the boss comes in and I went, there's no exit for me. I don't know how to get out of the scene and I'm not in it. And, and so I, I think we improvised on the thing that I'm playing with a locker and I'm listening. And then was it wasn't Gil, Gil Hill, who was the actual Detroit uh, cop. He actually in real life was a cop. Um, he says, Yeah, Jeffrey, get the fuck out of here. And I go, oh, This is not my locker. That, that is the one thing almost without fail, people come over and go, Hey, this is not my locker. I'm going, And I, because we were doing the, the new one, I, I re watched the first one. I go, It barely even made it in the movie. It was like on a cut. It's like I said, oh, this is not my locker. And I went, It's almost inaudible. And for some reason, that line, people come over, but I didn't understand it for years. People would come over in an airport and go, hey, that's not my suitcase. I go, <laughs> Oh, Beverly Hills Cop. You're doing a Beverly Hills Cop job." But um, <laughs> that is very sweet, and uh, I'm glad that you're <laughs> very touching to <laughs> your mother and grandmother. But, yeah, it, it's not a bad thing to be in a movie with Eddie Murphy.
1: Yeah, I mean, truly, that film came out, and it was, I think... Um, was it like 13 or 14 weeks or something like at number one, the box office? So it's You know, such and a- you also see,
4: it, I, it, I think it must have been Stranger Things where, you know, it's in the 80s and they're in a video store and there's a big cutout of Axel Foley. And it's like, the, just the poster for the movie was an icon of that decade. It's like, it was just so huge, you know? Um, yeah, you know, and, and Eddie is, is so sing- singularly talented. And I, I got to tell him this when I we worked on this recently watching him on SNL was was so joyful. And that's what I was getting from him. It's like watching him. It's like, Oh, Eddie's having fun. Cause like, he's kind of been staying home a lot. He's been really content to not be in the public, which God bless. That's great for him. It's disappointing for us who want to see him do his thing. And on SNL, when he came back, you just see over the course of the 90 minutes, he seemed to just have more and more fun and, and part of what's so great about you know his most memorable characters, I think, are the really childlike characters. They're just you know he's doing buckwheat and you're going it's ridiculous, but it's just so st- stupid funny. And we would watch that over and over again, crying, laughing, you know. And um, and we were talking about going back and doing stand up, and he said, I ah, you know, I want to, but you know, I don't know. I go, just do it, you know. There's there's no as a fan, you know. It's like a you know, and I'm certainly not the only one, people will be lined up around a block just just to see you do it. And I'd be really curious to see what he does material-wise. You know, you watch his old specials, and like, oh, he was so brash and so cocky. And, you know, he was 20, 21. okay, um, well, now he's a father, and I think might even be a grandfather. It's like, you know, now we're in our 60s. It's, I'd be really love to hear what you come up with. I'd love to hear what's making your brain and your heart move at, at 60. So I hope he does. I hope he gets out there.
2: I've never thought to compare him to Gilda Radner before, but her, char- her best characters were always very childlike too. And you would not think well, of that I'm as continuations, a- you know?
4: Well, a lot of comedy is, you know... I- I don't know if this is really true, but I mean, yes, there's a lot of comedy that being silly is inherently a childlike thing. You know, if an adult is silly, they can look foolish. You know, Jerry Lewis always talked about, like, oh, his roommate his was, you know, the five-year-old. Well, it wasn't quite a normal five-year-old. It was a Jerry Lewis. <laughs> but, but in his mind, he was being childlike. And, and Lucille Ball, you know, Lucy, or... Uh, there's a lot of funny and yes, the kid, cause you lose that sense of play, you know, um, Carol Burnett, you know, even, I don't want to say, I wouldn't say Mel Brooks is childlike, but, um, but the idea of being playful is itself childlike. So, um, you know, but Eddie, it's interesting. I going to go off on this Eddie tangent. You know, I, when he started, he was so confident and it was, it was kind of staggering. You know, we were, we, started out in the city I, I in, in New York and Eddie was out on Long Island and he was, you know, a little bit removed. It was like a satellite of New York. So he, had, for the, but I, we kept hearing, there's a guy, you, there's a kid, man, he's 16 and he's really funny. His name is Eddie Murphy. And he's great. So we would hear about, it's like, well, this guy must be good that we're hearing about somebody who hasn't even come into the city yet. And then the first time he came in, the first time I saw him, i was like, what are you kidding? He just took the stage <laughs> I was remembering this, that he would get a laugh before, just upon hitting the mic, getting to the mic, because his introduction was, please welcome Irish Eddie Murphy. And then he'd show <laughs> up, and he don't look Irish, and he'd get a laugh. he <laughs> get a laugh. Go, Fuck, that's really brilliant. Really but he didn't seem to ever exude an ounce of insecurity, or, you know, he just was so rock solid. But there was so much that was... Uh, in the beginning was brash and young and I can say anything I want and I can curse and I can say and I can make fun of these people and those people and and I can and he would even sort of joke about that. Like I'm gonna tell you a bit I remember seeing him here in some huge amphitheater eighties. And he was make fun of what he used to do when he was sixteen on stage. And he you know it was really sophomoric stuff about you know toilet humor. I'm going. You're making fun of it, but you're actually getting a laugh. So you're still doing it. So he he knew like that was part of his thrill. I can do the silliest shit and get away with it. And he would felt, you know, and he would show the world how great he is. But now the whole world has already told him how great he is. And and he's 60s. He's a 61 or two or something. So he, I'm really curious to, as a as a fan, as a friend, just to see like well, what are you going to do now because you so clearly are a giant you don't need to prove that to anybody and also you know people in their 60s don't have the same drive and energy as their 20s so who are you now and and he seems much mellower and very content with his life and you know you can't be a bigger success than him so as just as a comic and as a fan I, i i would love to know what what comes out of his you know next phase as a comic Maybe we can start something very big here. Maybe he's listening.
1: <laughs> Eddie, dial us up. Yeah, the number's on the screen. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Paul. It was
4: fun, man. Uh, yeah. You know, I have nothing to do these days, so call me any day. <laughs> okay. uh, we can talk about other things, but no, this is great, and. Uh, Yes, so now I'm going. I'm out there now doing stand up again, which is so funny to me that now people. I had took, I had taken so many years off doing stand up, and even though I've been back now a couple of years, people <laughs> go, "Oh, the guy from Stranger." Somebody told me they were going to. They would. They were telling a friend they were going to see me in a theater, and the guy said. You mean the, the doctor from Stranger Things is going to try and be funny now? No, no, no. He <laughs> he was always uh, I'm like, no, oh, I guess it's fair. People, you know, I haven't done it. So, but that's really fun. That's to me. That's the fun. Part. That's part of why I'm so excited for Eddie, Eddie to do it because I know how much fun I'm having getting out there. It's the only. It's the only thing that's really fun. <laughs> like the other shows, and, like Stranger Things is great. Well, I wouldn't say it's fun. But you get on stage and your people are right there. They're not even on Zoom. They're actually there. Um, so anyway, that's that's been the fun part to me getting out there.
2: Now, Jennifer mm. Aniston from the Morning Show trying to be funny—I just don't know about
1: that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks. Reboot is out now on Hulu. Coming up next, we discuss the Kate Blanchett and Todd Field masterpiece, Tar, and more.
0: On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my word. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Ready PG 13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13.
1: Tar, the latest film from Todd Field and starring Kate Blanchett, is out now in theaters. Most people are loving it, including us, obviously. At least one prominent film critic did not, and honestly, that's fine. But Great. it was Richard Brody, and I want to say, first of all, I love a Richard Brody review. <laughs> I, I honestly do. I feel I feel like the way that he writes about film is still like sort of like a lost art of like writing, like criticism writing, you know, it's like, it's actually like writing about the film. It's like, it's knowing knowledge of film. Uh, even when Richard doesn't like a film um, that I love, um, I'm not mad at it. Um, I, you know, you'll see, you'll, I will, you know, um, go, hmm, when he finds the twists and um, don't worry, darling ingenious. Um, You know, I feel like, the twists and turns in Olivia Wilde's life are more ingenious (laughs) than um, what's going on in that movie, okay? Like, maybe if Harry Styles was jumping in front of cars to keep Florence from leaving um, suburbia, from leaving victory in that movie, we'd be talking about it a bit more, okay? That's true.
2: It's also just, like, nice to have a contrarian film critic because it's something to judge. Like, if, if people are, like, unanimously positive about a movie, it's nice to have... The one person to compare it to, like, if you were to criticize this movie, what would that sound like? And so you can at least entertain the idea of you know, uh, uh, of thinking another way about a movie, but um, yes, he writes for the establish that, yeah, mm-hmm.
1: and it's not like he's Armand White,
2: right? Which, by the way, let some of those also <laughs> legendary. When Armand White would step up to be like, you know, what movie <laughs> is the, the best of the year, Jonah Hex, or
1: whatever, so funny. <laughs> and that's sort of what i love about um film critics you know i mean it's 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 honestly very fun when they do have an opinion that's different from yours and when they at least have the tools to discuss why in their brain it's not working for them
2: you know yeah. mm-hmm uh but, but yeah but the reason uh, uh a negative review of tar would be notable is this is a movie that has on metacritic something in the 90s you know it's it, it's like carol for uh cape Blanche at another that level uh critic critical success and i want to say about the movie that first it is two hours and 40 minutes long so if you're going to have a problem with it it's probably about you know if anything could be cut but it's not even fair to call it a good performance or even a great performance. I want to just say it's a genius performance, which seems trite given that she is playing a genius in the movie. But the levels of what she brings are so surprising. It's, it's like Blue Jasmine in terms of uh, this, this character disintegrating, kind of, times Black Swan, the, dr- the drama Black Swan, times Phantom Thread. So you've got like a, a gothic stateliness that follows everything in this movie and and the master the ma, uh the mastery of tone I think is the real star of the movie that Todd Field has really nailed here but it's about a female conductor who is an egot winner and I just want to say that all of Twitter has discussed how that is even really possible how what e what she would have in the e and the g and the o and the t but I'll accept it and uh uh how she has kind of compartmentalized everything in her life, including her indiscretions, including her transgressions. And you watch how all those things kind of catch up with her as the movie goes on. And as you get a lot of very intense orchestra scenes. So it's just a, a, a an amazingly um, symphonic and yet harrowing movie.
1: Mm-hmm. I would even add that it has a bit, not just in subject matter, but a bit of, you know, like the... Um, Fun intrigue and camp at times yes. of notes on a scandal. Yeah. Oh, it's also very funny. Like yes. the dialogue it's, it's a alone hilarious is hilarious. Film. Yes. I, I, I truly have never seen Kate Blanchett be better. Yeah. Um, this is a career best for her, and every sardonic line reading from her is just it's, it's it's hilarious. It's a hilarious movie. There's a moment early on where she's just sort of like sitting in a restaurant, too, and, like, it's, the camera is just focused, you know, like, on her face, too, and it's, just wonder how many takes she's doing of a scene like that, because it's, like, every moment the camera's on her face, she's living in that role.
2: Oh, yeah. And, and when I bring up Phantom Thread, a, a big reason I compare it to that movie is the the crackling wit, the devastating um, uh, uh, condescension of that character is a lot like Daniel Day-Lewis in uh, Phantom Thread. So there's lots Mm -hmm. to dig into in this movie. The thing that may um, bristle is that there's it's a movie that is entertaining the world of cancel culture, which even by saying Mm -hmm. those two words, I feel like a fucking Republican. As we know, I hate the words cancel culture. (laughs) We've talked about how it's consequences culture. We're all on the same page about that. So by even making a story about it, you're like, is there something sinister or slightly
1: right of center going on here but and making it a woman too you know it's sort of like that's a lot of the critiques that i've got i've heard being like is this just a me too film but it's about a woman so it's women can do it too and i'm like there's there's so much more going on yeah beyond that
2: though I, i it is interesting i'll get to that in a second so at first you're like, yeah, what is the point of view of this? But really, I think the strength of the movie is it's not saying whether what happens to her is all good or all bad or what or like telling you what to think. It's saying here's a version of what would happen to someone like this and even even though she has moved everything in her life like a chess piece. You know, like even though she had you can only master um, your life for so long before something else takes over, b- before consequences take over, I think is part of what the movie's about. But you're right; I do think it's a weird movie to make about a woman because the movie has to basically invent a power structure for her to abuse that doesn't, I think, exist in real life. Like, I like in this movie, uh, Tar uh, Lydia Tar, uh, Kate Blanchett's character is also is a queer woman, and she. Takes advantage of all these other like queer cellists and violinists walking. It's like, is this like, is, is this a parallel with real life? Is there like a queer circuit of cellists I don't know about? Yeah. Maybe if the movie was about Jenna
1: Lyons. <laughs> See, right. Who, by the way, is now a real housewife of New York. I just heard that. They've rebooted the entire – there's going to be a Real Housewives of New York legacy to keep, like, some of the older women – the women who've been on it before for fans, you know, to still see them, like, in, like, another offshoot series. But they've completely rebooted um, Brony with new women. And I was shocked when Jenna Lyons was added into it because I remember how bizarre and interesting we found her HBO Max series. Right, uh, right. And it'll just be interesting seeing, like, a lesbian with that weird brain on TV – Doing reality, I think it'll be fun.
2: Which calls to mind, I am very ready for a world of fan fiction about Tar. I want to hear about Tar's disastrous (laughs) relationship with Annie Leibovitz in the eighties. I want to hear about (laughs) her ongoing feud with Fran Leibovitz. I want to hear, you know, it's just like you. It's it's a rare character, so like you you just want to hear more about her because I can't think of like what's the uh, what's another
1: movie with somebody like that. Yeah, it's it's interesting because when i saw the film my friend uh who i'm not going to name names uh to embarrass him but was convinced it was a biopic oh help me God. because because what what it does though is uh i think they had heard from someone that it was a biopic mm. um and like but my other friends were trying to remember who it was about but the thing is the character that is created here you're right, I do want to hear about her history. I do want to see the fanfic. I would watch a TAR TV series to be yeah, honest absolutely. because I feel like the character is so
2: well drawn. Right. That the strength of the movie is you you know exactly who this person is even though you've not seen her in another movie before. I think that's definitely true. Um by the way, all the and, other performances in this movie are amazing. The woman uh, she lives with Nina Foss amazing. Uh, that woman from uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, who's like her assistant. Awesome. Uh, just, Mark I love Strong all the is Mark so Strong, good in this of course, in it. Yes. Uh, uh, also, and- how are you feeling, though, about this Best Actress race? Because let me tell you, the stands are revved up about Michelle Yeoh, our friend from Keep It, uh, in everything, <laughs> everywhere, all at once. And I have to tell you, it's not that I want her to lose. <clears throat> it's a very even race I think and I would I would
1: It's hard to talk about it. It's yeah. hard to talk about it because honestly you honestly this is such an exciting year with I think career bests from right. the women in the race right now. I mean Viola Davis of The Woman King is doing things that I have never seen her do before.
2: She was uh, invigorating. I wonder if that movie suffers in (laughs) retrospect from seeming a little pat. Like it Mm -hmm. ends and it's like, oh, she's The Woman King, you know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But like we're about to get Michelle Williams in The Fablemans and obviously we've discussed how it's a smallish role that's being entered in Best Actress, but – Michelle Williams has this career of goodwill going for her. You've never disliked a Michelle Williams performance. She was fucking sensational as Gwen Verdon, sensational in Brokeback Mountain, sensational as the mm. best friend of Busy Phillips, which is, as you know, the most trying role of all. Um, <laughs> actually, we love Busy Phillips. That's just a joke. But, uh, uh, but it's like, how can you vote against that? There's It's a bunch of performances that I can't imagine voting against.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also... I I will say that there's the Spielberg factor too, right? Yes, like I feel like is there Spielberg fatigue? Mm.
2: Which is interesting because it felt like it barely got off the ground with West West Side Story, you know, which people
1: refused to go see. Um, Which I loved that film, but um, it's 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 interesting to it'll be interesting to see um, what shakes out in this race. I mean, for me, it's I mean it's Kate. Yeah, you know, I mean, I it's between Kate. I mean, Kate, Viola, and Michelle are like all doing amazing things this year. But it's like, wow, I've just and it's I I love Kate so much that obviously I feel like she could she could and will top this or do more interesting things, you know. But I feel like she's reached like this is definitive role for her right now. Totally, you know. Agree, and I still feel like you know, as we were like fan casting things, you know, with Sam Sanders and stuff. Like, I still feel like there, has, there are definitive roles that have not yet been written for Viola Davis, and I mm-hmm. need the industry to give them to her. Yeah. Like, where the fuck is her tar? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ha- has Viola Davis played a genius yet? I'm ready for that. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's weird because it's like, if How to Get Away with Murder was, like, a prestige film instead of a series... She that would be sort of be like that character, correct? You know? Yeah, yeah, that lesbian, sort of alcoholic, you know, yeah. manipulative. Mm-hmm. Like, give her that on screen, you know, give her uh, Angela Lansbury and the Manchurian candidate, you know. Mm. Um, honestly, she would she would have done better than Meryl in that reboot,
2: which I keep forgetting <laughs> exists. The 2000s are her a fucking Denzel. wasteland, namely for Meryl Streep uh, up until um, uh, uh, Devil Wars Prada.
1: And let me tell you something. That is a that is a dark spot in the Jonathan Demme universe.
2: <laughs> Jonathan Demme is some up and down shit going on over there.
1: God <laughs> loves the, the man. truth about Charlie.
2: That I don't know. Uh, I mean, but yeah, they they aren't all you know Melvin and Howard in the Silence of the Lambs or whatever. The man who gave us racial getting married. Um, no, I, I want to add about. Um, Cape Blanchett, you know, people are like, Well, Michelle Yo is due an Oscar, or uh, Michelle Williams is due an Oscar. It's like, guys, you know what else is due? Kate's third. So I don't mean to sound like a bastard about it, <laughs> but it's like she is Ingrid Bergman level, she is Meryl Streep level. So all three of these probabilities need to occur at some point. Okay, she is a potential mother. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Actually, she's Petra's father, if you've seen Tar, but. <laughs> That's one of the best scenes. I, she confronts a child in Tar. Anyway, you got to see it just for that alone.
1: It is – I need to see the film again, obviously. It is so – it's so mesmerizing, and it's also so interesting in um, the Todd Field um, filmo- filmography.
2: Which is now three deep.
1: Yeah. Th- you know, he, ta- he takes a while, but when Todd Field drops a banger, yeah. it's a banger. All three okay. of them
2: are great. I mean, it's uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's a flawless filmography.
1: Yeah, you know, Todd Field spit it. Todd Field wrote it. So, <laughs> in the bedroom, little children,
2: which I, I thought was never going to be topped, and now we have Tar. So,
1: and but it's it's tr- it's interesting that they're all sort of these, um, in a way, small human mm-hmm. stories that are really just sort of um, blown up to an expansive like bird's eye view you yes. know you uh-huh. really get into a character's like point of view every like their lives i mean i the cancel culture convo in this is so funny to me because i love just like the mo- <laughs> the v- maybe the goofiest parts of the film are the cancel culture moments you mm-hmm. know like like the people with the signs like um Oh, yeah, cancel out, Lydia like, I love or you. Yeah, I'm like, are the people filming her? Like, <laughs> they're so funny, though. You and know, that, and and that it's part a-
2: is like Notes on a Scandal where she's like crowded yeah. by people eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, but no, and also specifically, she has this, she, she teaches at Juilliard at the beginning of the movie in one staggering scene, which is filmed like Birdman, where it's like 30 minutes in a row or something. And she has this talk with a student who says he can't get into Bach because he's, quote, a, a, a pan gender person of color. And it's like, okay, let at least be fair to like people from that generation who might have objections to being taught, you know, old white people are the best. No one would ever say, I can't be in Bach cause I'm pan gender. That makes no sense.
1: <coughs> Did he say pan gender? Yes. Oh, I thought he was just calling himself a POC, but you know, I will say that that scene is so interesting to me because You are on his side when he's talking about like why he doesn't want to get into these old white men, but you're also weirdly on her side. And when she has her withering responses, you know, and she's like Negro music, you know, like I forget who she says had said that quote, but it's like, it's so abrasive and you're in with her character and you laugh during it and you're sort of like, is she right? And then later in the film when it's recontextualized, um, to take her down, um, it's almost like the audience is indicted too. Yes, right. Uh, yeah, I think the audience is sort of put on blast a little bit, which is a strength of the movie. Two things I will also say aside from like the Petra scene with the child, there is a scene towards the end um, which is so funny and will clearly be memed. Uh, yes. And it is so wild when it happens. I screamed in the audience are we we talking about the very end no not not well no the very end of the film is also a gut punch yeah yeah, and a scream but but i'm talking about the um the scene at like the 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 met of course yes right before the ending you know (laughs) before before the epilogue like that scene i screamed (laughs) because you don't see it coming
2: no. And and also it's one of those things where you thought you knew what was going on in the scene at the beginning of the movie and mm-hmm. you don't realize what's actually happening. Um yes, no that's it's very it's definitely the most um the movie is very restrained for the longest time and then suddenly the restraint goes
1: away. Yeah. Um also as I don't know if you've seen Barbarian. Yeah. No, can you uh, believe it I haven't. Uh Yeah, and I'm not going to ruin the twist for people, but you know like it's um it's still out go see it it's a I think it's a wonderful horror film but um it actually has so much in common with tar because it's actually about in a way like you know like power and like canceling and like these things too um, and it also just has searing moments of a woman descending into a basement and the scene with the dog in tar t- like took me out it was yeah. horrifying. There's, lo- there's lots of strange
2: Divergent scenes in Tar that you're like Do these all belong but then looking back on it I'm like I love all those moments I love how sc- scrambled it was So anyway go yeah. see Tar come back We'll continue talking about this movie for five months Because you know the Oscars and shit The race is heating up yes. okay? And it's an actual race I'm thrilled about it It's a rat race <laughs> Do not bring up that fucking film to me <laughs> Especially in this era Of Kathy and the Jimmy resurgence
1: Do not do this to me <laughs> you don't want to think ca- about Kathy Bates and the squirrels. Ugh, God, it's just—it's just not right. Uh, I am going to get Whoopi on here and ask her about that movie. I bet she'd be like, "I barely remember." <laughs> she'd be like, "I'm, I'm, I'm closing the Zoom. I'm closing the Zoom, baby. I'm closing the Zoom. You need to get a damn job." Ah. <laughs> uh, Whoopi still giving us sound bites on the View, all these years later. I love no, it. My she fa- was never an favorite... intuitive
2: choice for that show, and she is exactly right for that show.
1: And the sound bites are usually um, just to say this as a side note. My, the sound bites are usually when someone has said something about her in the press. Yeah, she will. She she will she will come with the newspaper, with the magazine, <laughs> with the clipping, with the link, and she will do a straight address, and she will say. You are an anonymous bitch. <laughs> she does read her own <laughs> press, which I'm, impresses me. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I would not be able to say uh, if I
1: were a celebrity of that stature. All right. Um, when we're back, keep it.
2: And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It's keep it. Lewis, me, you're going first. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that cracked me up. <laughs> um my keep it this week is to just a tweet I saw, which is Vogue Runway, which I guess is not Vogue, saying, Thanks to Selena Gomez, the 80s cult classic Working Girl is returning to screens. Now, first of all, I just want to address the reboot or remake, etc., of Working Girl. The politics of that movie are pretty ensconced in nineteen eighty eight. So I'm a, I'm both curious and uh, pessimistic about what they can possibly do with it to make it harken back to the original and Miss Carla Simon better be involved. That's all I know. Um, Second of all, cult classic bitch. Come on. Do you mean it's a, it's a movie about women? Is that it? Like it's, it literally is a best picture nominated film from 1988, nominated for all sorts of Oscars, huge financial success, hundred million dollars at the box office. I just feel like, If you're going to write a headline about pop culture, it can't be someone who refers to everything as either iconic or a cult classic. That's just not how brains should work. It feels very simple to me. And uh, it's just not a cult classic. It's a stone cold classic. It's on the uh, AFI 100 lists of greatest comedies. You know, it's like, is is 9 to 5 a cult classic? Is It Happened One Night a cult classic? You know, just because you don't see it, the the poster from it every day of your life the way you might see, like, I don't know, the seven-year itch or something... Is it more of a cult classic, and uh, I just think we need to talk about things not just in terms of sheer recognizability all the time.
1: Yeah, I would say that that is sort of one of the downfalls, pratfalls, whatever word I want to use. Uh, Penelope pit stops <laughs> of, you know, uh, you know, like, like writing and gearing things towards a younger audience online. It is. P- people are just able to write about things um, without any sort of knowledge about yeah, them, or you, yeah. I- or you, uh, no authority, and you ignore, yeah, and you ignore, um, basic, just like common sense, to appease like an audience or something. It's the idea of what a cult, cl- the idea of even just writing that it's a cult classic. It's like has this person ever even seen Working Girl?
2: Yeah, it it sure sounds like they haven't. Yeah. And also, it's just, right, like, who is the person that would read that and think, like, oh, yeah, that cult classic working girl? Like, I don't even think younger people, like, either you haven't heard of the movie, or you do know what it is, and you remember it's a big hit. So it's sort of, like, misses everybody.
1: Cult classic mean girls.
2: Yeah, I mean, wait for it. Wait for it. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe the definition of cult classic needs to be redefined to me because mm. if it if it just means oh a certain amount a certain kind of person remembers that movie or remembers that thing, that's just pathetic though I hate that i i yeah I, I hate how small people's memories are. do you get that sense Col- from me that's how I feel mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah that's why I only hang out with elephants that's right. <laughs> Babar, that's your boo. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, this is why I'm always always tying a string around my finger. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Good reference. Um, I feel like cult classic used to mean it flopped at the box office. Yes. And it did well on either cable, VHS, or like a real cult classic, a like real, real, real cult classic is it has like midnight screenings.
2: Yes. No, I mean, I think you think of, of course, Rocky Horror Picture Show, or Mm -hmm. I think something that this is almost a bad example because it's so ascended in pop culture that now I feel like everybody knows it. But Clue used to be a cult classic. Yeah. So anyway, this is my very Gen X style beef with uh, the terming of uh,
1: cult classic. I'm I'm merely 36. A millennial version like Jennifer's Body. It's a cult Jennifer's classic. Jennifer's body
2: is a perfect example. Yes. That is a cult classic. Like what critics. It, yeah. You know, and, and yeah, love there's it. and there's a, and, and like the critics were wrong, sort of thing. You yeah. know, so people like ended up discovering a lot about that movie. Ira, what is your keep it this week?
1: My keep it, and this is gonna hurt me to oh, say no. this, but um keep it to that ladies' album. I am tired of hearing it on repeat at parties at this point. A, t- a ladies album? You know what lady I'm talking about. Oh,
2: I, th- I thought literally you were talking about an album called Ladies that I d- I was like, <laughs> I don't know this thing. <laughs> that lady,
1: Beyonce. Oh, you're sick of it. I'm sick of hearing it at every damn party on that <sighs> on repeat. What happened to playlists? That is it- true because it's a specific, shall we say, vibe. Yes. And so
2: it's just like it now it feels like you're just like somebody put on a movie you've seen a hundred times.
1: Yeah, and it's – listen, I still love the album. I still think it's phenomenal, you know, and, like, I want to listen to it in my own time. I don't need – the vibe of every party isn't just put on renaissance from start to finish anymore. It was for a minute. Right. Um, But then the days have gone on and I haven't gotten a single visual that isn't tied to a blood diamond. Yes. (laughs) Oh, no. I mean, maybe I'm really just angry at these fucking Tiffany's ads. Yeah, I mean,
2: you really thought she would pull through. I mean, in a way, I respect the blue balls in it. You know, (laughs) she's like, oh, you think Rihanna's got that game on lock? Watch me do
1: it. Okay, at this point, it seems like Rihanna's going to drop new music before we get visuals for Renaissance. That's
2: a really confusing statement and hurtful. Um, We're hearing
1: about a tour. We're hearing like she's going to probably, Rihanna's probably going to be on the Wakanda Forever soundtrack. Yes. What is going on here, Beyonce? I've got to tell you,
2: if Rihanna gets into that Oscars game, this is going to be a good Oscars. I mean, it better be that good. I mean, all the the stars, that's a nominated song, you know. I hope it's that level.
1: I mean, listen, with all the actresses nominated this year, um, with Harry Styles vying for a nomination – um, maybe a Golden Globe. I was gonna uh, say uh, but, you,
2: may, you may, I'll see you with the Saturns, faggot. Okay, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I'm thinking about Lady Gaga's press tour when she was like Oscar nominated for at least for song, right? Mm-hmm. But that you're getting, you know, like Lady Gaga levels of camp, and you know she's overselling it and giving you like giving gi- giving giving the gays everything they want, yeah. Right. But there will be a different quality to the proceedings if rihanna is nominated for an oscar for song because i'm just thinking how do you like how do you miss that red carpet how do you yeah, how are right. you not panning to rihanna in the audience at the oscars every chance you get totally. because you know what i miss i've missed rihanna and her shady reactions at, like, the VMAs and other award shows while other people were performing. <laughs>
2: yeah. No, also, by the way, it would just be uh, – you, you mentioned Lady Gaga, who – I worked the red carpet at that Oscars. And when she arrived, it, I mean, it was that Beatlemania-type reaction. Like, people like, were waiting specifically for that moment, for her to arrive at the Oscars. But also, just the, that kind of Oscars moment you don't get anymore where, like, Michael Jackson's there with Madonna, you know, like I am ready. Like when 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 a pop star intersects with the Oscars, there is something so explosive and uh uh unmissable about it. And, you know, obviously after last year's Oscars, there were things about it you, you couldn't miss even afterwards. But this is unmissable <laughs> in a new and kind of cool way.
1: Um What's crazy is that um Ezra Miller, they're probably going to break into the Oscars and steal all the <laughs> statues. So I would love a caper at the Oscars. yeah
2: Oceans Harlequin Miller. novel about... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the perks of being a... Et cetera, et cetera, yes.
1: Well, it's funny that we... we I remember we critiqued the fact that um, Ocean's 8 was about like, oh, here are these women robbing something. So, of course, it has to be jewelry from the Met Gala, right? Yeah. But... I, I would not complain if there was a gay Ocean's Eight, and they were stealing something from like the Oscars. Oh, they they were actually—they're actually, they're stealing Kate Blanchett.
2: Oh my god! <laughs> and then she can do her famous gay wrist meme
1: during it, pointedly <laughs> and meanly. Ah, uh, she she loves us, truly. Right? Yeah. No, she
2: um acknowledges us with a courtly clap. And accepts us the way we are and, and knows we are inferior to her.
1: That's nice. You know what? I'm like, and I'm thinking about it probably won't be her, but you know, I was thinking like, you know, I saw the Nicole Kidman um ad before um Tar, because I saw it mm-hmm. at AMC Lincoln Square. And um I'm wondering if like I'm thinking I've been thinking about the sequel that's coming. Yes. To the ad. And I'm like. I hope it's not campy and like makes fun of the first one. I hope it plays it straight, but I'm also hoping that someone else is in it with Nicole Kidman. Someone Ooh. unexpected, uh, an, an somebody else in the theater. Like, like she, like she, you know, like she's going to get popcorn or something now. But like a friend is with her. But who's the friend? Oh, God. Kate? I'm Viola. Taraji? Mm. Like, I don't know. The, the, I would love endless. to keep it Australian. I would love to keep it Australian. <coughs> um, Na- Na- Naomi's working concessions? Okay, I mean... <laughs> guys, it's a good pitch. I kind of think it should be. Uh, and she won't have to leave her day job to shoot it.
3: <laughs> it should also be this
1: cruel. It shouldn't be campy, but it should be cruel to Naomi Watts.
2: We should- <laughs> How many we gay know, text another- chats have like disparaging <laughs> jokes about Naomi Watts, who, by the way, is a fine and great actress?
1: <laughs> uh and you know, she's like just the Danny Minogue of the acting world. No, so. right. It's just the proximity to Nicole, who is her best friend. Yes. Yeah. It's we're not saying put the needle on it, uh, and I begin to wonder aren't iconic, but are they light years? No. Right, and also
2: those are the only two. So yeah, <laughs> so it's Mulholland and, you know, Drive and The Impossible, and that's about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I we'll throw The Ring Twenty One Grams. Oh, oh, okay, The Ring Two, The Ring Two. You thought I was going to bring up liking Twenty One Grams? I know. <laughs> I can't. I don't even like that movie. Okay. Yeah. I, not good. Not good. It wishes it were Blow. Right. <laughs> and I can't believe I like Blow, a film that I will never watch again. Now you know because um. The um the scarecrow from the haunted hayride is the star of it, (laughs) but um you
2: at least get Catherine in that, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: All right, that's our show this week. I hope we delivered enough for y'all have been listening to us for two hundred and fifty episodes. That is really that is really lovely. Uh, I do want to be earnest right now. We got uh, I had a lot of people who were just excited to see me at BravoCon, but also people who were excited to tell me stories about how, like, um, they went through, like, really sad moments in their life um, over the past five years, and listening to us sort of helped them through it. I mean, we heard a lot about that during lockdown, but other, pe- other moments in their lives that people just, you know, shared with me briefly, um, it's, it's nice that this show means a lot to so many people. And it's such a gag because we're just sitting here talking.
2: So thank you so much for making it seem even remotely rad. Just two, you know, queens babbling. So much, much, much appreciated. And it's such a blast. So thank you for joining uh, us. And if, and again, if we're wrong, tell us. Love it. Yeah, the number on the screen, call it. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> call me now for your free reading. But read me. That's my Miss Cleo thro- uh, shout out.
1: Thank you again to Paul Reiser uh, for being here. And honestly, I wouldn't be shocked if he, if he just popped into our Zoom one time and was like, you know what? I brought Eddie with me. Yeah, right.
2: <laughs> Eddie, I just want to tell you how
1: great you are. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. We will see you next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III. And Louis Fertel. Our editor is Charlotte Landis. And Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nara
2: Malconian, and Dalan Villanueva for production support every week.